0: The garden help you need. Now, Mid-South Gardening on the Mighty 990. Powered by Palladio Home and Garden. With your hosts, Veta Vance, Kenneth Mabry, and Jim Crowder. Good morning, gardeners. It's a beautiful day. going to be 88 degrees. And uh, I think, or maybe even 85. Uh, And you're about to hear a whole lot about garden myths. We're going to, we're going to tackle some of those things that you believe are true and really aren't. So, um, first thing I want to talk about though, are you're going, there's going to be a lot of people that hear what I'm going to have to say and they're going to just say I'm wrong because you know, sometimes even with indisputable evidence, people will not believe what you're saying. So most everything that I'm going to talk about has scientific evidence to back it up. Now, that doesn't mean that all science is good. Uh, one of the classic examples is the, um, the, the sudden uh, death syndrome in bees caused by metacloprid, which was bad science. Um, it proved not to be true, but it started, uh, it started on the Internet and just went wild. Uh, so, we're going to talk about lots of different things. Uh, first of all, I want to thank Plaudio Garden for being a sponsor of this show and also our one of our partners, Kenny Crenshaw, who I've done ads for them because I believe that they're probably the best in the business um, for nearly 40 years. So, anyway, the first one we're going to attack today is eggshells. What do you do with them? Well... You know, a lot of people want to throw them in their, in their compost pile and, in hopes that they're going to give calcium breakdown, put them up underneath tomato plants, you know, to raise the pH to keep them from getting blossom end rot. Uh, and the fact is, it, it doesn't work, okay? Uh, eggshells are, and first of all, if you're trying to be totally organic, eggshells are not, okay? It, what's in them is organic. But the shells are themselves are made of are just uh, calcium carbonate. They're lime. Um, they're about 34% calcium. they got a little, very tiny amount of magnesium and phosphorus and potassium, but they're not big sources of that. Um, and if you just throw them in your shell, they're not going to, I mean, in your ground, they're not going to do anything. There was a study done on some property that Thomas Jefferson owned in Virginia. Uh, it was a a tobacco plantation from about 1840 to 1860, and he had slaves there in slave houses. And they went in and looked at the subflooring and did excavations of these houses, and uh, they found chicken and duck eggshells, okay? Uh, And they could tell the difference in them after 165 years. So the eggshells are not going to break down on their own. For them to change the pH, You'd have to get them ground to powder. They'd have to pass through what's called a number 60 mesh, which is um, 60 holes per inch. So a square inch of them has 3,600 holes. It's got to be fine enough to pass through that or it's not going to affect your pH. Um, So most people cannot get them that small. And one a couple of their problems with them is that if you get the eggshells not quite small enough, worms will eat them, and it can kill them. Um, there's you see other things about putting eggshells down for slugs to prevent slugs from crawling across uh, your your soil to where you're protecting plants and um, they're not going to happen. It's just not going to do it. There's if you can Google it on the on the internet and see all kinds of videos with egg, with slugs just going across the eggshells. So for blossom end rot, that tends to, that's the problem that we think about using eggshells for, and and we talk about it often as saying a calcium deficiency, but it's not a calcium deficiency in the soil it's the inability of the plant to move the calcium up and calcium carbonate which is lime it's also tums so if you're grinding tums up it's not going to work either calcium carbonate can't be taken up in the plant if the soil is extremely wet you have to have a different type of calcium to get it up to the fruit and there you need either calcium chloride which you can buy in products like stop rot which is a liquid Or calcium nitrate, which is an excellent fertilizer to use. Um, So that's, uh, if you want to use your eggshells, break them up, throw them in your compost pile, but they're not doing anything other than just sitting there. So I hope I haven't hurt anybody's feelings, but not going to happen with your eggshells. Let's talk about another one, coffee grounds, you know people put coffee grounds on their plants because they think that it's acidic. Well, the fact of the matter is, it's not. You know, if a lot of people go to Starbucks and collect the, the uh, coffee grounds there. And Starbucks uh, says that the pH is about 6.7, which is just barely acidic. Uh, in, in independent tests run on their grounds, some of it was as low as 6.2, but still, that's just barely acidic. If you were to had enough coffee grounds to mix with your soil to affect the pH. It, in our soil, it would raise the pH. It was It is not acidic. Now, the other problem with coffee grounds is they're toxic to plants if they're not decomposed. Uh, n- almost nothing grows under a coffee plant because of the leaves that fall on the ground and um, the chemicals that are released are, are toxic to most plants. If you mix it even just a little bit in your soil that's not decomposed, the plants are going to suffer. Uh, there was a test done at Melbourne uh, at, in, at a university in Melbourne, Australia, where they used just even very small amounts of fresh coffee grounds mixed in with soil, and regardless of how much they use, it had detrimental effects on vegetables like broccoli, leek, and, and plant... Ornamentals like violas and um, uh, sunflowers. Uh, And then there's the other issue is that they are toxic to worms. Um, In another university test, they composted coffee grounds in three different ways. Uh, And regardless of what they did, they all caused significant decline in earthworm populations as they decompose. They release organic compounds that are just toxic to earthworms. Um, there is a, a video out there showing where they're spraying coffee on plants and it kills slugs. Well, that's a concentrated coffee that's on there. Uh, it does nothing to slugs on the ground, so you know it's not going to help you much there. Uh, you, if you're going to add it to your compost pile, you need to also add some what they call brown leaves, uh, grass clippings, you know, and if you'll do it about a third of each, leaves, grass clippings, and coffee grounds, that's a good ratio, and they add a little fertilizer to kick it in. Now, a lot of people like to take coffee grounds and sprinkle them on top, fresh coffee grounds, sprinkle them on top of the soil. Well, what happens is to break down that organic nitrogen that's in the coffee, it has to absorb the free nitrogen that's in the ground. So you'll end up starving your plants. Now, it, if you're not using much, it's probably not going to be insignificant, but it can actually starve your plants by just sprinkling on top of the ground. Uh, and it's not really a good source of fertilizer. Um, if you had 100 pounds of it, it would have about 2.2 pounds of nitrogen. Uh, about six one hundredth of a pound uh, for, of fertilizer. Phosphorus and about six tenths of a pound of potassium. Well, that's not much, you know. Uh, to get 10 pounds of nitrogen, you'd have to get about a cubic yard, which is about 450 pounds of coffee grounds. So, you know, in the free d- nitrogen that's in it, you drank. So, there's really the, all the organic nitrogen in there has to be broken down by microbes because, you know, it, people talk about wanting to give plants organic nitrogen but the fact is the molecules are much too large they can't be absorbed by a plant so the plant has to break it down and when we come back we're going to take a break here in just a second we come back we're going to talk about how that releases with organic nitrogen so anyway you're listening to kwam this is 990 am 107.9 and this is mid south gardening (laughs) And welcome back to Mid-South Garden. I'm Jim Crowder. Give us a call here. Um, you know, we'll, we'll answer questions. If you disagree with me, come on, let's talk about it. So, um, anyway, we thank you for tuning in this morning and hope you enjoy the show. We have, uh, during the 8 o'clock hour, I have a couple of young ladies from the Tomato Baby Company coming. You know, we had last week uh, weekend, we had the uh, Mid-South uh, Tomato Contest. And uh, we're going to announce some winners uh, there. But uh, she was a judge there, and I invited her to come up. She, uh, she grows uh, like 140 varieties of tomatoes. So I think it'll, it'll be an interesting conversation. Uh, so anyway, all right. we were talking about organic nitrogen and how it works for a plant. It's, we say it's slow release, but one of the, reason, the reasons it's slow release is because it has to be broken down by microbes. And those microbes don't really get kicking in until the te- soil temperature gets up. You start getting some some of it at about 60 degrees, but it really doesn't go really fast. I mean, really break it down until you get about 77 to 85 degrees. So that's uh, the soil has to be really warm to really break down organic nitrogen quickly. Um And it's broken down into inorganic forms, the same that's in synthetic fertilizers, okay? So, you know, they eat nitrites, nitrates, and ammonia, uh, basically. And the microbes break that down from the organic nitrogen so that it's usable to the plant. So that's the reason that it's slow release is because it just, you know, it has to have warmer temperatures. And uh, it takes time to break that down. Um, so, uh, I was going to talk about something, oh, um, we're going to talk about the same thing with tea, okay? Uh, if you have a Camellia sinensis, um, the same thing is true. Very few plants grow up underneath it because of toxins released by the tea leaves. Uh, So you'll see people suggest about mixing, uh, making a tea. And I've seen tea made out of bananas and all kinds of stuff. Uh, You really get very little benefit from those. Uh, It's, you know, it's entertaining if you want to do it. But um, tea also is toxic. The caffeine primarily is toxic to a lot of different plants. So um, and I mentioned banana peels there. That's another one that I see a lot. Um, and just searching for it uh, last few days I found where they made fertilizer sprays out of it um, they mixed peels and eggshells uh, they made the banana tea um, and and one thing that I read in an article it claimed the fertilizer content was 0.25.42 um, they're 80% water they can't be that high the true fertilizer food inside of it would be like, uh, in 100 pounds, you'd have one-tenth of a pound of nitrogen, about a tenth of a pound of phosphorus, and only about 2.3 pounds of potassium. Uh, So people think, oh, well, bananas are a good source of potassium, so that's why we want to put them in there. Well, they're really not that special. Um, Tomatoes, potatoes often have more. Uh, a cup of chocolate milk has about the same amount of potassium as a banana, uh, and the thing is, most soils are not deficient in potassium uh, or manganese, which is the other uh, other thing you get from from bananas. You'd get more good out of just using peels of things like avocados, melons, squash. Uh, they have more uh, potato peels. They have more potassium in them than your banana. And if you've ever used a banana peel, uh, a lot of people want to put them up under roses. They turn into a mushy mess. I mean, they're, they're really gross. Um, I don't know why you would want to put them in there. And, and, and they take a long time to decompose. Um, I, I just can't believe that a, a new plant trying to put new roots down into your soil is going to appreciate that mush. Uh, and then if it does, when it does decompose, it's going to leave an air space in there and that's not good either. So, you know, if you're going to use banana peels up under your roses, uh, you just have to chop them up finely, uh, and put them in there. They're still not going to do any good, but if it makes you feel better, go ahead and do it. All right. Um, another one that I see a lot is mosquito plants. Um, people talk about having a scented geranium or lemongrass around to repel mosquitoes. Well, the problem is that the only way they can repel mosquitoes is by crushing the leaves and releasing the oils into the air that will repel them. So unless you're sitting in a field of lemongrass or scented geraniums, it's not going to do anything. Uh, Again, if it makes you feel better, have one, but there is no it's not going to uh, keep mosquitoes away unless maybe you crush the leaves and rub them all over you. Uh, and I wouldn't suggest doing that. So it's really not a good thing uh, to do. And The other thing I wanted to talk I'm going to save this one until after the bottom of the hour because it usually is a lot. But another thing I see a lot are um, misting helps plants or putting them in trays of water, uh, the fact is it doesn't help. Okay, misting is substitute for rain, but it dries up quickly in your house. You've got air movement, and any water that you put in there, the humidity is being moved out throughout the house. So you could not. Uh, it, it regardless of what you do, it's not going to help. Um, the only plants that really need to be misted, misted, or like um, air plants, uh, orchids, um, any bromeliads, they they are capable of taking water in through the pores of their leaves um, because they don't normally grow in ground. So those will benefit by misting those. But everything else, um, you're you're not not helping the plants, and it's not helping the humidity. Uh, at all so uh, let's think of another one here all right oh yeah we're talking about misting a lot of people think that if you water in the midday you're going to burn your leaves that somehow the water magnifies the light and burns your foliage and a classic example is i've seen people talking about japanese maples that that happened to Well, it it doesn't happen, okay? Now, cold water put on a few things like African violets and a few fuzzy leaf begonias and apicias can actually cause them to be damaged. But uh, sunlight, you can water in the middle of the day and it's not going to hurt your plant. The reason Japanese maples have those spots is because they really would prefer to be a couple of hundred miles north of here. Um, When the soil temperature drops to about 70 or gets up to about 70 degrees, the Japanese maple goes into a sort of a self-defense mode, and it doesn't move water well from the roots up to the leaves. So many of the varieties that we grow now have very tender foliage, uh, highly variegated, or they're serrated and very thin uh, leaves, and as the summer progresses because it's not moving water up this tissue will actually desiccate and that's what you what you get with the crispy edges around the leaf and with the um, um spots on the foliage I drink a cup of coffee here keep me awake I don't know about you but it's early um so anyway, Japanese maples do that, and they're going to do it every year. And next spring, they come out and they look absolutely gorgeous. Um, so it's a um, it's just a natural thing here in Memphis. Uh, if it were a little cooler, if this were Oregon or something, you'd not have this issue. Uh, another one I see a lot are uh, poinsettias are poisonous. Oh, uh, they're not. No part of them is poisonous to any animal. Okay, and I've heard that the little Uh, Pollen uh, um, structures in there are toxic cats, and none of that's true. Okay, I've eaten them; they don't taste good, but they're not toxic at all. Um, If you were taking cuttings and planting those without gloves for years, there is some indication that the latex sap from them is a carcinogen, but that. You know, you're never going to come in contact with that many. So uh, anyway, so, you know, if you want to eat some, they they really look good on a salad, but um, they just don't taste very good. Um, Got another minute or two here. Let's see. We're going to talk pine needles. That's an interesting one. Um, We, a lot of people think pine needles are acidic. Um, The fact is that dry pine needles have a pH of about 6.5. Now, when they're green, they first fall off the tree. They are acidic. They're down below 4, about 3.8 or so. But they're not, um, when they're brown, their pH is about 6.5. So, again, if you were to put them on most of our soil around here, if you could put enough, they would actually raise the pH. But they're not going to affect it. Your soil is extremely stable. You just can't uh, change the pH without working at it really, really hard. So if you want to put a foot of pine needles around your plant, it's not going to affect your pH one way or the other. It's not, you know. So you can put them around azaleas. You can put them around boxwood. It ain't going to make any difference. Uh, One and and they break down when they touch the ground so they're actually good mulch while they're elevated above the ground they're you don't get much decomposition in them so they they last a good long time uh and they're good at keeping weeds out um so good uh findings are great okay we got we got to go to the half hour break here thank you all for listening this morning we've got a lot of other myths we're going to attack and you're listening to kwam mid-south gardening Welcome back to Mid-South Gardening. Thank you all for tuning in this morning. Give us a call. The number is 901-260-5926, and we'll talk about anything you'd like to. But in the meantime, we're we're debunking a few garden myths here. Um, The next one we're going to tackle is, does it help plants to add rocks in the bottom of a pot for drainage? And the answer is no. It actually makes your soil wetter. Okay. Uh, I know that's counter to everything people have thought, okay? But it it doesn't help. Sometimes stand get take a sponge, get the get in front of the sink there and just get it hold it flat, get it as wet as you can hold it. And when it stops dripping, that means that the bottom of that sponge has 100% of the water that it can hold, okay? It won't let the rest of it go because that's what it's supposed to do. It holds 100% of the water. Now, if you take that flat sponge and turn it up on the long edge, more water pours out. Gravity pulls that water down until that bottom has now 100% of the water that it can hold. Then if you stand that sponge up on the end, even more water comes out. So you've taken a soil mass there, and when it was low, it had a lot of water in it. But the deeper it became, you lost um water so the driest part obviously is at the top now same thing happens in soil right there at the bottom of your soil whether it's on the bottom of the pot or on top of gravel it holds a hundred percent of the water than it can and if it's you move that upwards by putting it on top of gravel the dry soil at the top is not there anymore so you actually have the wettest soil in a smaller root mass. And the deeper you make it, the worse it is. The Japanese learned this many, you know, hundreds of years ago with bonsai that the flat pots hold more water than the deep ones. Um, So, in it's, um, I know it's counterintuitive, but if you put anything in the bottom of the pot to help your drainage, all you're doing is moving the wettest soil up high, and you're going to have a smaller root mass, wetter soil for the same amount of roots so it's I know it's a lot of people have trouble believing that, but it's it's actually true um the only thing you want to do really is put something over the bottom of the pot to keep creatures out um. Roly-polies particularly, slugs like to get up in there. So you want to put a piece of screen, or I use seashells, just drop them over that, and uh, put your soil directly down on it. And then a lot of people think that you need to change that soil every year, and you really don't, okay? Um, You should be able to get two years, really, out of the soil. Now, you may need to fluff it up because it settles and compacts as it begins to break down. and then about the third year take out about half of it add half new soil mix it all up together uh and you're ready to go again so you don't have to replace that soil every year um you just want to fluff it up as it begins to break down it gets smaller and smaller particles and that holds more moisture so uh anyway let's talk another one um I've got several here. All right. A lot of people want to fix the soil, okay? There's really nothing wrong with your soil, okay? Clay soil is good. If you had to start with anything, you'd want to start with clay soil. The particle size is very, very small. And a lot of people mistake fixing the soil as improving drainage, and and it's not. Um, When you loosen the soil and put organic matter in there, you now are going to have more water in your soil than you did previously so you're not increasing your drainage you're actually decreasing your drainage when you improve the soil the most important thing is getting that root ball up above the ground your ground level so that gravity can pull the water out of that and leave you with uh, some roots that can get to air All plants have this limit of how much water they will withstand or how long their roots can be submerged. Some plants, none. They just won't tolerate it. Um, So you want to make sure that you get that root ball up when you plant it. That way, no matter Mother Nature or you overwater it, it can get some air to keep it alive. When you mix that in the soil, you want to... You, you want to not over-improve it, not more than, say, 20 or 25% new stuff. And when you're mixing it with the clay, basically what you're doing is you're taking the clay soil and the barky kind of mix that was in the pot that it was grown in, uh, and you're blending those two together. So what you have is something similar to a half an or a part and, part new soil, and loosened clay. Now that's going to allow the roots to go out quickly. Uh, It's going to have organic stuff for microbes to feed on. So that's the benefit of breaking up that soil. But in about three years, if you go back in there, you're going to find that it's all clay again. Uh, Mother Nature really doesn't want you fooling with her soil. So it will all go away, Uh, but that's okay it gives those roots time enough to get out of that root ball. Now the hole should always be bowl shaped. It should not have straight up and down sides at all. It should always be roughened up so that when roots hit something that makes them eat a lot of roots when they touch something they'll split off and have two roots going one each direction. So it helps develop better roots if there's the edge is roughed up so that plant, the roots can hit that. And it should be bowl-shaped so that any roots coming out are funneled up the side and up to the surface. All of the roots here of any importance are right at the surface, whether it's a big tree or whether it's a shrub. Uh, they're very close to the surface, uh, and they're there for a reason. Most of the food they get is the nitrogen and the rain, so that's where they're after to compete for that. Uh, and that's where, you know, things like uh, trees have such massive root systems. That they're sucking out that water right near the surface. So that's why your grass doesn't want to grow under the tree. Um, so when you dig that hole, make it bowl-shaped, make it two or three times wider than the container that it's in, but never any deeper. You, in fact, I always le- go not quite as deep as the container, so it forces that root ball up above the surface. OK, um, and, and it, I, there there was a, Dr. Carl Whitcomb, who is the guy behind a lot of the new crepe myrtles. Uh, you have like Red Rocket and some of those. He did a lot of research on soil when he was at, I think, the University of Oklahoma. Um, they did a test plot where they dug like 10 holes. Um, and the in one, they just put the loosened soil back in. Then they added various amounts of different compost and soil amendments, uh, and to see how well uh, it would help a plant grow. And then they planted. Of course, this was many years ago. They used Bradford pears because that was the thing at the time before we knew they were all going to break. Um, he planted Bradford pears in there, and after three years, they went in and they dug those trees up. They counted roots. They weighed the tree. They counted leaves, weighed the leaves, checked the moisture content. They did all these measurements on every single one, and the tree that grew the most and performed the best was the one where they did nothing to the soil other than loosen it, okay? So that's the most important thing, is loosening our clay soil to give those roots time to get out away from that root ball. Uh, What you put in it is not near as important, okay? So, anyway, uh, I think we got to take another little break here. Um, so, uh, we appreciate you listening. Give us a call at 901 260 5926. This is Jim Crowder, and it's KWAM. And welcome back to Mid South This is Jim Crowder, my co host, uh, Veda and Kenneth, who they have to work for a living or out on a vacation, I only work on Saturday mornings. So it's, uh, I don't get to take vacation. Um, we were talking about not over improving the soil. The most important thing is losing it. There was a case, uh, I think it was in Michigan where, um, there were maple trees planted in the medians that were beginning to die. Um, the same trees planted on the sides of in people's yards were doing just fine, but all of them in the medians were beginning to suffer. Um, they even named it a, a disease. They called it Maple Decline. Um, they first thought it was car emissions, and they blamed a lot of stuff. But when they found they got to doing some digging, they found out that they were all planted by the same person. They were done according to the instructions given to him uh, by the, the city. Was to remove all of the existing soil, replace the tree plant the tree in a new mix that they had specified, uh, and which he did. And it took about 40 years, but those roots finally filled up that hole that he dug, and the trees were beginning to suffer by choking the roots and, and going into decline. Uh, they were just totally root-bound. Uh, they said when you they went to take them out, you could pop them out like popsicles because the root balls were so dense and intact. And when the roots came out, they didn't want to get into the native soil. They wanted to stay in the looser mix, and they just circled and circled and circled. So, And there's a lot of roots down there. Um, that full-grown oak tree that you've got in your front yard there uh, has a root zone on it that's about two and a half times the width of the canopy. So if it's 60 feet across, you know, it's about 150 foot wide uh, root zone. Uh, think of them as, as I say, think of them as a goblet in a dinner plate and about 70% of the plant is beneath ground, you know, and on that giant oak tree, if you took all of the little feeder roots, now these are microscopic roots. These are not what you see in your hand. These are tiny little feeder roots that are what actually absorb moisture and nutrients into the plant. If you could take those off of that one tree and line them up end to end, they would circle the earth about 25 times. There's something in the neighborhood of 600,000 miles of feeder roots on a mature oak tree. So now you wonder why plants suffer up underneath there. Those things are just filling the ground in, to, in competition for food. So um, it's, and it's moving on a hot day like we've had here, somewhere upwards of 400 gallons of water a day are being absorbed by that oak tree and then released into the atmosphere. Uh, So anyway, it is a huge organism. Um, And, you know, you want to make sure that you water and you want to make sure that you water that entire root zone. Um, And remember, whatever you do to your lawn is likely affecting the tree also. So, you know, be careful. All right, um... One of the things that people have issues with is up underneath the tree having moss, okay? And so they, they think, well, the soil's acidic, let's, let's add some lime and try to make it go away. Well, it's not the fact that it's acidic. It may well be, but it, the what's happening is that the soil has become compacted, uh, in your grass or whatever is under there dies out because it's so compacted, and the moss can move in because it can live on top of that. Uh, you can kill the moss usually with iron. You, know, you can get a number of products that are granulated iron to throw in there and kill it. But just adding lime to the moss is not going to kill the moss uh, because its soil compaction uh, is the main reason that you've got the moss up underneath there. Uh, one thing I saw, too, there was, uh, in, you know, I, I'm reading this, I see all of these articles that are saying do these things, you know. Um, saw one just recently about pruning paint. Uh, you know, the only thing pruning paint's good for is sealing the inside of a pot. Don't ever use it on a plant. Um, the only plant that I ever put anything on would be a rose uh, because we have such a problem with rose cane borers here. Um, and, and just put a little Elmer's glue on top of it and it works great. You don't see it. Um, never, never put printing paint on it because one printing paint's black and it absorbs the, the heat of the sun and actually causes the cells behind it. If they're good wood to ferment. And when it does that, you can get heartwood rots and you know, you suddenly have a tree that, you know, you've got a limb on that you've just covered with black paint but the heartwood is rotting out of the inside of the tree, so you know just uh, let Mother Nature take care of it. Let it be exposed to air so that you can see what's going on there. Uh, stay away from the pruning thing. Uh, that's okay, uh, another one I see a lot is people say talk about using Dawn detergent you know, as an insect killer. Um, well, it will kill insects, but it's also not good for your plants. Uh, on the top of leaves, you've got a, a, a waxy coating, the cuticle layer there, and detergents will strip that off. Now, it does, the detergent gets on the insect and causes them to do the same thing. It just, um, they can't breathe through that. Um, so, you know, it's, um, you should never use that. Now, you can use a insecticidal soap you know but there's a difference between your dishwashing soap your bath soap and insecticidal soap you know you would never think about cleaning your counters with insecticidal soap uh so you know the chemistries are different so you know use the right product stay away from the dawn detergent particularly um you know you see that nice cute little commercial where they're cleaning the ducts you know and and with the dawn detergent but what they don't see you is that that duck has to sit and preen and put the uh, get the wax back onto their le uh, onto their feathers. Uh, if you were to clean that duck and throw him in the water, he'd drown. Okay, so it's uh, it it will get the oil out, but that the you know the animals have to replace that oil to be able to to swim again. Um, it does kill insects, you know, will smother them, but it's not healthy for your plants or the environment. So, you know, I, I don't know, have, I have no idea why people want to look underneath their kitchen sink to find something that's not labeled for that uh, and use it. Um, and, and if you look at practically every product, the first thing it says on there is um, using this product inconsistent with labeling is considered a federal offense. So that means, you know, you don't clean your counter with insecticidal soap. It's there for a reason. Right? So um, let's talk about mulches a little bit. I see a lot about cedar mulches uh, used as, uh, do they repel insects? Well, first of all, the cedar mulch you get, none of it's cedar, okay? Uh, it's all Chamaecyparis or, or cypress or juniper or Or something like that. The um, there are only like three cedars, maybe four. That you know, the Atlas cedar, the uh, cedars of Lebanon, uh, and the uh, Diadera that are true cedars. But that's not what you're getting when you buy cedar mulch. And people have this idea that because you know you see the the hope chest or whatever built out of cedar wood which is actually red juniper um that it keeps moths out well the fact is it really doesn't the reason moths don't get in there is because they seal fairly well and the reason that if you had moths in there they're not likely to die is because they're not going to seal well enough to get toxic levels of the oils to kill them um but the main reason is they just can't get inside the cedar boxes Uh, and using cedar or any other wood there was no difference in results when they tested them Um, so it's uh, it it doesn't seem to repel insects termites will prefer other wood uh, if you give them a choice but they will go through cedar too so any type of cellulose is a target for termites. So um, if you're using cedar mulch for that, uh, well, you know, it just isn't doing what you hope for it to do. Another one we see a lot is peonies need ants to bloom. Well, there's just no truth to that. Ants like peonies because as the bloom develops, they leak a nectar that's very sweet and sticky. And ants like to feed on that. So they will come up and feed. But if you didn't have ants, your peonies would still bloom. Um, and I see that a lot. Uh, where that's the recommendation. You know, when people say, my peonies aren't blooming. Well, they're usually not blooming because you've got, ended up with Botrytis blight or something like that. So, uh, let's see. don't have a lot of time left. Well, what else? Uh, let's talk about organic pesticides. Well, no, we won't. We'll take a break. This is KWAM, Mid-South Gardening. I'm Jim Crowder, and uh, stay tuned. We're going to talk about some more mids Be back in a minute. The garden help you need. Now, Mid-South Gardening on the Mighty 990, powered by Palladio Home and Garden, with your hosts, Veda Vance, Kenneth Mabry, and Jim Crowder. And good morning, gardeners. Welcome to our number two, Mid-South Gardening this morning. uh, It's a solo show for me. Kenneth and Veda are taking a well-deserved vacation, hopefully uh, with their own spouses. Uh, So... Uh, Anyway, um, we're talking about gardening myths this morning and invite you to call if you have a question or anything at uh, 901 um, it? uh, 5926 Getting old is tough, you know. Sometimes the words that you want to say just don't come up like they should, just like right now. So uh, anyway, uh, appreciate y'all listening this morning. Uh, we, again, we want to thank our sponsor, uh, Palladio Garden, and also uh, our partner, Harvest uh, Systems, for being with us. All right, we have actually a call, Philip from Germantown. Good morning, Philip. How can I help you? How you doing? Uh, you know, all right for an old fat man.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I live in Germantown. Sorry, I mean, turned down my volume. I live in Germantown, and uh, as y'all know, probably. 100 gallons of diesel fuel has leaked into our water reservoir.
0: Yeah, heard that.
1: I've uh, run into a kind of a issue. I put down sod Thursday about five pallets worth in my backyard and they watered it in pretty good with uh, that water and as you know, it's probably going to need to be watered twice a day. So, is this Probably a damned if I do, damned if I don't situation.
0: Well, I don't think so. Um, it's a very, very small amount, and it's you know it has some fumes, but I'm not sure that the the amount is going to hurt your grass. Now, you also should have gotten like five inches of rain.
1: We did. We got a lot of rain yesterday. Yeah, so that which probably helped me out today.
0: It did. It it deleted down, and you may not have to water because the you know the. Uh, Cooler temperatures and it may not dry that fast. Um, just you know, pick up the corner of one and see if it's uh, moist up underneath there. And you don't need to water it normally twice a day. Is that's a lot one normally, but water it long enough that it gets thoroughly saturated, and it should be fine till the next day. Um, okay. And you want that's, to keep keep that a... up until you can't pick up the corners anymore, till it gets rooted in.
1: Excellent. Yeah, that that gives me that gives me some relief because that, that was a uh, lot of work that I didn't want wasted.
0: Yeah, and,
1: I, uh, I, and I did see the city of Germantown sprinklers on this morning, so maybe they know something I don't.
0: Yeah, well, no, they just they run regardless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I live in Bartlett, and this morning you could see everything's wet as can be. We didn't get that much rain, uh, it, not as much as Germantown, but you know the sprinklers and the medians were running during the night, so they they water okay. whether they need it or not. But yep, I don't well, think I you've got anything to worry about. Well, I definitely appreciate that, y'all. Y'all take care. Hey, thanks for calling this morning, Phil. All right. Um again, give us a call. We got I think we got another call coming in, but uh number here is 901 901-2605-926. Another thing I wanted to talk about uh, briefly here is um backyard beehives. Um this this is a touchy subject, I know, because People plant, uh, people want to have beehives so that they're helping the pollinators, okay? Well, it's actually doing exactly the opposite. Um, Honeybees are voracious feeders, uh, and they travel long distances from their hives, and they are actually depleting the food source of things like uh, robber flies, green flies, other bees, a number you know, hundreds of varieties of native bees. Uh, and they are one of the biggest causes of our decline of our native bees. Um, they, um, because, you know, I, I know you get good honey from them. I love it. I eat it myself. Um, but there are so many of them that they are, have become an issue to our native bee population. Uh, there was a, one study done in New York where they took a, a plot of land and they figured up how many beehives that would support, and they came up with something like nine beehives would be enough to for that area. But when they counted, there were 54 hives in there. So they're traveling huge distances to get food, and they really are... Not the best idea for home backyards. Now you know, farmers. It's it's part of their the it tools that they use. Uh, if they're not raising their own hives, um, then they have hives brought in. You know, they take millions, really millions of hives to Southern California every spring for the almond crops. In um, worldwide bee uh, honeybees only pollinate about 10 percent of our food crops uh in in the u.s it's about 30 percent but a lot of that's the almonds uh the reason they use those is because they're easily moved which you can't do with so many other bees um but they're um i know it's a touchy subject but they really are not the best thing for uh our, our native bee population so, hey, we got another call here. Let's go to Mitch in Memphis. Mitch, how are you? Hello, Mitch. Is Mitch there? Uh, apparently not. Okay. So, anyway, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, we were talking about cedar mulch. Or it made me think that they, a lot of people think cedar mulch will repel the bees. Well, actually, a lot of beehives, good quality beehives, are made out of cedar. So, um, and because it, it you know, they, they think that it helps repel the tracheal bite, but I'm not, uh, I'm not really sure that it does. Anyway, uh, one of the reasons that bees have, honeybees have become such an issue, um, you know, when they were originally brought to the country, some of them escaped and that moved across the country. So, you know, I, I used to see in the woods beehives all the time. But they slowly begin to disappear because we were moving all of these bees across the country and taking this trachea, trachea mite with them uh, that spread throughout the wild population. So the the ones that were in the trees, you know, in your local neighborhood, uh, begin to die off. And then there's also the fact that there's, in a lot of areas, there's just not enough food. Um, you know, we, uh, we all seem to have perfect lawns now without any clover. Um, you know, when I was young, you could, you know, just lay down in the clover in the front yard and look for four leaf clovers, but now you seldom see any in yards. Uh, so there's, uh, there's not a lot of food for them early in the season. So, um, but anyway, uh, you have to, you have to make your own decision about whether or not to have, uh, have the beehives in there. Um, I look at them as an invasive species, um, which they are. So, anyway all right um again give us a call 260-5926 and uh, we'll talk about anything you want to all right next thing is uh, marigolds repelling insects um you see this a lot see it a lot in organic gardening pro- programs about planting marigolds between your plants um there is just no evidence that that does anything other than attract spider mites um there are a lot of insects that are not attracted to them that would go to other plants uh, the only real thing that they know marigolds are good for are root knot nematodes but it's not if you plant them next to your tomatoes you have to grow them till them into the ground uh and then plant your tomatoes and they do seem to repel uh, and prevent root not nematodes. But uh planting them next in your garden, regardless of what you think, uh, they're really not doing anything uh to help repel your insects. Uh, that's an that's another one that, you know, people go, yeah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. So uh, anyway. Um I'll talk a little bit about staking trees too. Um, you see people plant trees and they, um, put three poles, put tight wires on them so that they absolutely cannot move. And it's the worst thing you can do for a tree uh, as far as staking it. It prevents it from moving, uh, and it needs to move to strengthen the trunk. So the best way to, to stake a tree, if it needs it, is to take a single stake, get as close to the trunk as you can drive it through the root ball down into the subsoil up underneath it and loosely attach it to it so that it's allowed to move okay uh you don't want to pin it down to the ground okay we got to take another break here uh you're listening to kram radio and this is mid-south gardening okay welcome back to mid-south gardening this is jim crowder again my co-host veda and kenneth are on vacation this week so uh, we're just, we're trying to, undump, debunking myths this morning. So uh, the next one we're going to talk about is sand, adding sand to your soil to improve drainage. Um, well, it doesn't happen. Okay. Uh, you would have to add about 90% sand to 10% clay to help water move through it any quicker than it would uh, otherwise. Um, and the reason is the particle size is so different. Uh, the example i like to use is that if you could um, imagine a single grain of sand the size of the white house then a particle of clay would be about the size of an orange Uh, and they pack they're flat they pack on top of each other and they will seal between all of those grains of sand and until you get to about 90 percent sand there's enough clay to seal it so it may make you feel better to mix a little sand in there, but it's not doing anything as far as helping improve your drainage. Now, because there is an airspace, a tiny, tiny little bit of space between the soil and the sand sometimes, it does help roots get out of the root ball and they'll take the path of least resistance, which can be around the sand. But uh, as far as adding sand for to impr- increase your drainage not going to happen. Okay. Um, let's see here. I saw one that, and I wasn't familiar with this, where people put sugar under tomatoes, um, to make them sweeter. Um, can't happen. Okay. <laughs> now what it can do sugar as it dissolves feeds microbes, which can release nutrients and actually, uh, improve the health of your plant. But as far as the sugar making the tomato sweeter, um, that's that's not going to happen, okay? Uh, one I see a lot is, you know, of course, this is an old-time saying, is you plant on Good Friday. Well, you realize that Good Friday can come anywhere between March 20th and April 23rd. That's a long time, okay? Um, really, if you're going to plant, think about the last frost date, which normally here is around April 15th. Um it's been some time it's the earliest was in February one time uh and we've had frost into early May so you know planning on good friday is um unless you just you know want doing something planting by the moon which again we could talk about um it, it there's a lot of variance in time there and there's a lot of difference in the soil temperature and remember we talked about particularly if you're using organic fertilizers the soil temperature needs to get warm before you get a lot of benefit from them. You know, starts at 60, but it's really when it gets up in the 70 to low eighties, that's when you get a lot of benefit from your organic fertilizer. Another one that I see a lot, and this was based on a NASA thing was that, you know, if you have plants in your house, it helps purify the air. It takes out, uh, things like formaldehyde and that sort of thing. Well, you have to go back and look at the test. Okay. What they did was they put some plants in a sealed capsule, like going into space with the interior about the size of a Volkswagen. Okay. And they put a lot of plants in there and they found the plants did absorb it. Of course they couldn't, there was no place for the, these they're actually volatile organic compounds or VOCs. There was no place for them to escape to. And the plants actually absorb some of it. So the thought that the plants were helping, uh, was kind of misleading for you to have enough plants in your house to make any effect. Okay. You would have to, you could only have a very narrow path. Everything else would have to be plants. Uh, we're talking about in in a normal room, like four to 500 plants. To be able to see any any significant difference in volatile organic compounds being removed, you yeah, so you know the philodendron in your bathroom uh, ain't it's not doing nothing, okay. As much as you'd like for it to, it's not improving the air quality in your house. And besides, you know, all of the things that are releasing those volatile chemicals in your house continue to do that, okay. Um, so. Plants are not the answer. Air purifiers, if you have an issue, are the answer. Okay. Um, another one. I want to talk about um, the type of nitrogen that is used. Okay. There is a difference. If you're using organic nitrogen, um, like we say, it's very slow release. But if you're using uh, a quick release nitrogen, ammoniacal nitrogen. Things like we used to put on our lawn, lawns, ammonia nitrate, which is now actually urea that we use. Uh, it, it produces soft, lush growth, bigger leaves. Really makes it grow. If you use a nitrate nitrogen, you're going to get more uniform, compact growth, uh, and it's because and nitrate is readily available in the soil because it is. Um, negatively charged and most soil carries a negative charge so the nitrate is repelled by the soil whereas ammoniacal nitrogen is positively charged and it's attracted to the soil so it's not readily released until the soil temperature rises and the microbes can do their things on it so um, you know if you're wanting to fertilize your pansies in the winter time you want to use some nitrate fertilizer okay that will actually get into the plant and make them grow Um, another one is how much fertilizer, uh, a lot of people don't understand fertilizer or, you know, they go by the weight of the bag instead of the, the nutrients on the bag. Um, it's easy. First of all, most plants like about a pound of nitrogen per thousand square feet, okay, as a good dose. Now, the frequency of that depends a lot on the plant. Plants that are heavy feeders like Bermuda grass, um, roses, those you can do that once a month. Azaleas is only needed about twice a year. Um, some plants only once a year is fine. Fescue it really only needs about a quarter of a pound of nitrogen per thousand square feet to produce a decent lawn. Um, so it's the frequency that makes... Makes a lot of the the, um, the difference in what we use as far as fertilizer. Now you can—it's easy to figure out how much a bag of fertilizer will cover. Okay, because we're going most things. Like I say, we're gonna put a pound of nitrogen per thousand square feet. So if you take the first number of the bag, let's say you're using a six twelve twelve, multiply it times the weight. Take the first number, multiply it times the weight of the bag. So you got a six. Let's say it's a fifty-pound bag. So that's three hundred add a zero on the end, makes it 3,000. So that bag covers 3,000 square feet. And that works with anything. If you know, you take the first number, multiply it times the weight of the bag, add a zero on the right, and it tells you how much that will cover. Okay. If you increase that, you make it grow faster, Okay. It, particularly if it's a quick-release nitrogen. Um, but that's the best way to figure out how much to cover. Okay. Uh, Then let's talk about mulch a little bit. Um, there, you well, know, yeah, we'll talk about mulch when we come back. We just have a couple of minutes here before the break. Um, if you want to give us a call, two six zero five nine two six. And like say, in the eight o'clock hour, we're going to have two uh, two young ladies, uh, uh, Miss Haggerty and Miss White, who are with the Tomato Baby Company. Uh, they're going to be here to talk about tomatoes and in the many varieties that they grow, something over a hundred tomatoes. Uh, I met her last week as a judge at the Great Tomato Contest, and uh, uh, so I asked her to come on and be on this show this morning because I have nobody to talk to and argue with. So anyway, give us a call here uh, at two six zero five nine two six, and we'll tackle your problems if you have one. Um. One of the things, too, I want to, again, mention is be careful about what you read on the Internet. Almost everything is, well, I would say nothing is 100% true. Nothing. Uh, And a lot of it is just no truth in it whatsoever. But most of these are written, that we see are written in magazine articles. Okay. These people are not gardeners. They are writers. And they have people who assemble all this information and they make it look pretty and they sign it and put pretty pictures on it and uh, and make it look true. Uh, but so much of what they say has no basis in science. Um, so be very careful about what you believe. Of course, now everything I'm going to tell you is based in truth. So, you know... Uh, <laughs> But that's, you know, one thing that I really like about our Facebook group. If you're not a member, you should join. It's it's Mid-South Gardening, Gardening in USDA Zone 6, 7, and 8. We got, uh, we're just a couple hundred away from 10,000 followers now. So, um, but there's a lot of good information there. And, of course, we get some stuff that's put on there that is uh, iffy. Um, You know, in fact, one of the the rules on our our group is, you know, uh, there's, it would be very hard to tell the difference between an expert and a fool, um, <laughs> because you know, it all sounds good. But a lot, of, you know, if it's something's posted that um, I feel like is uh, totally wrong or could in- injure a person or a plant, then I'll step in and correct it. But otherwise, uh, we let you weed through it and see what you believe. So, anyway. All right, we've got to take another break here. We'll be back in just a minute. I'm Jim Crowder. This is Mid-South Gardening, and you're listening to KWAM. And welcome back to Mid-South Gardening. Good morning, everyone. If you're just joining us, this is Jim Crowder, my co-host, Veda and Kenneth, or on vacation uh, this week um, And we've been take, talking about Myths this morning in Busyman uh, But we have a call Let's, uh, We have Susan from Cordova. Let's take Susan's call Good morning Susan
1: Good morning So glad to hear you this morning Thank you uh, We have two oak trees One in our front yard One in our backyard They're pretty old Well, um, The uh, acorns have fallen And embedded themselves in the gra- in the lawn and the little seedlings, or whatever they're called, saplings, have sprouted. Mm-hmm. I've been pulling them, but there's too many to pull. So, would a broadleaf uh, weed killer take care of that?
0: They will. Now, of course, you, you're going to want to be careful and not do that too much under the root system, over the root system of your tree. Uh, because it can. Oh,
1: yeah, these are far from the tree.
0: Now remember, your root zone extends well beyond the edge of the tree. But yes, broadleaf weed killer oh. will kill those. Yeah, okay. in our soil here, you know, we, if, if you heard earlier, we were talking about. If you think about a tree, think of it as a wine goblet in a good in a dinner plate. The root zone is about two and a half times the width of the canopy on average. Okay. So it goes well out in there. But if you're just going in there and lightly, particularly spot spraying. You're not going to have oh. any ill effects to the tree whatsoever. Okay, I can spot spray. Yeah. All right, well, thank you very much. Hey, thanks for calling. Yeah, you, we want to keep broadleaf weed killers out from underneath most trees, particularly sh- very shallow-rooted trees like birches, dogwoods, um, maples. Um, if you're going in there and using like a weed and feed spray or a broadleaf weed killer and just spraying everything, whether it needs it or not, uh, you can end up over time hurting that tree if you're doing that a couple of times a year so it's best to 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 go in and just spot spray particularly under the drip line but on the and and be but even beyond that uh try not to use i I shy away from weed and feeds that you you have to broadcast um that there's just no need to put a weed killer down where there's no weed uh so be very careful about uh, spraying or around the tree. Uh, give, give us a call, 260-5926. we two six. We'd love to take your problem. Uh, talk about your problems. Well, one thing I want to talk about, too, was uh, landscape fabric. Um, it really sounds like a good idea, okay? Um, but if you're going to do any gardening, it's a pain uh, because you have to go in there and you have to cut a place to plant bulbs or annuals uh, and when you do that, you allow weed seed to get down in there. Uh, few th- If it's a good quality fabric, very few weeds other than maybe nutgrass, will come through it. Uh, but it doesn't stop Bermuda grass from encroaching on it, which is the main problem I think we have in beds is just our turf grass wants to get in there. Uh, but we have products that you can safely spray, uh, things that have fusillade or or um, post in them that you can spray and kill the grass without damaging your ornamentals. Um, You can spray over the top of monkey grass, uh, say, for instance, and get the Bermuda out of it. It has to be green. You can't do it in the wintertime, um, but it does a real good job of that. But fabric can be uh, a nightmare uh, over time, and if you're putting mulch on top of it, what will happen is that mulch begins to break down and form basically a layer of bark dust but it's moist it's organic and weed seed will come up in it on top of it and root right through it so if you're putting mulch on top of there you need to really remove it every couple of years get it all out uh, clean down to the fabric and put coarse mulch back on top of it. Otherwise, eventually you're going to have weeds growing in that decomposed stuff that's on top of your fabric. Um, it, so, it, like I say, it sounds like a good idea. Now, if you're doing like a rock drainage bed or, or a, a dry creek, put it down there and put rocks on top of it. Great idea. Uh, and he, because you can come in there, even if you get a weed and use something like uh, glyphosate or Roundup and just spray right down it and, and not worry about damaging anything. Uh, But in a a bed that you're going to work, it can be a real issue, and you will get weeds in it ultimately. So um, I would say, you know, be very careful about using it. Um, It also, as it breaks down, it will fill those pores and holes in it uh, that allow air and water to move through. So you can have some issues up underneath it. You know, I've seen where it's been pulled up and there are worms right up underneath it. And you go, Oh, Hey, that's good. Yeah, there's worms right here. Well, the reason they're there is because they're drowning. Uh, they're not, the water is not drying in the soil they can't breathe. So they're coming to the surface to get up underneath the fabric. Uh, we see that with cardboard planted in vegetable gardens where, uh, you know, people pull up the cardboard and go, Oh, look at all the worms. Well, they're there because they are drowning. Um, if. if they, they prefer to be down further, but they, there's so much water in the soil that they can't. So, um, a lot of times what you see, what you think is a, a, a good thing, hey, uh, is really not a good thing. So, um, another thing I want to impress upon people is checking your pH. Um, again, pH is very hard to move. Uh, ground is very stable. Um, if you're trying to get like your hydrangeas to be real blue, takes a good bit of aluminum sulfate or iron sulfate to get that pH down and to stay down. And it, because it wants to be what it is right now, you're going to have to continue to adjust it. Um, I see a lot of times where people will put boxwood and azaleas in the same bed, and they're they're not compatible plants. Doesn't mean they won't both grow there, but the best conditions for them, you know, boxwood wants to be up with a pH six and a half, close to neutral, whereas azaleas want to be at five and a half or so. You know, and uh, if you're trying to grow blueberries, we want those down at 4.8 or so, very acidic. So, you know, get yourself a pH meter. They're inexpensive. Now, they're not going to be 100% accurate, but they're going to be close enough for government work. Uh, in, you know, I've got one that doesn't have a battery in it. It's, I bought it 20 years ago or more, uh, and it still works fine. Now I've got a really good one, um, that I have also, uh, but the little inexpensive one will, will give you a good idea of where your pH is. So always uh, check that. And you want to check down at about three to four inches, uh, particularly if you're looking at your lawn because the pH right at the surface may be off just due to fertilizer that uh, has been put on it. So check down three or four inches. Um, I had a lawn service doing uh, my yard for a while years ago, and uh, they, uh, they were putting down fertilizer and putting down lime every year, and I went out and, and checked and found, and found the pH on average was about 5.3. It was way too acidic for lawns. Uh, and they were adding lime, but they weren't adding enough lime, and they weren't checking it to know that they weren't. So anyway, it's important that you get that pH up. All right, uh, let's see. You know, we got you know, we got time for Jamie, the Master Gardener. Good morning, Jamie. How are you?
2: Doing great, Jim. All right, That's we're great. going. To, Thank oh, you.
0: Yes, sir. We're going to talk about the winners of the contest during the eight o'clock hour, and uh, really appreciate you inviting me to be a part of that. It was it was really cool and I ate something like 80 different tomatoes, I think.
2: <laughs> well, good. Listen, we uh, we think we've got this down to a pretty good science now, and I hope to get Elena, uh on with you and thank her at the same time.
0: Okay, she's but, coming on during the 8 o'clock hour.
2: Okay, good deal. Well, mm-hmm. look, tell her that uh, Well, maybe she's listening now, but anyway, I wanted to thank you and you and she and, and the other judges. I mean, we've got uh, Judge Battle and uh, Judge Valerie Smith and then Judge, of course uh, Judge McCalla. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's a that's a really good group of people, and everybody seemed to have a good time. And this is what this thing's all about: and education and uh, and having some fun with it. So yes. yeah. thank you all so much.
0: Yes, sir. We really enjoyed it, and thank you for being such a, a um, uh, an active part of the gardening in uh, in Memphis. <laughs> Another time, I can't think of the word I want uh, so anyway, um, Jamie, uh, we'll, uh, we, he may call back in the second hour and talk. Uh, we have, uh, like I say, we have uh, Elena and um, Rachel coming in from Tomato Baby Company uh, to be a part of our program. Um, also, one of the things I wanted to talk about, too, was um, moles and voles and how to control them. Um, this, there's no myth here, but, uh, other than, you know, people talking about putting juicy fruit, chewing gum down, uh, in the hole and those people swear it works. Well, UT actually tested it, uh, and they didn't find that it worked at all. Didn't do anything. Uh, in fact, the moles wouldn't even eat it. So, you know, moles are carnivorous and they're the ones doing the damage to your lawn, but voles that run through their their tunnels are what's doing the damage to your plants. They'll eat bu- anything. They'll eat bugs, they'll eat plants. Uh, moles just get in there and uh, disrupt your soil, feeding on grubs and earthworms just under the surface. Um the best way that I have found to control them is with repellents. Uh I've used traps and I've never caught one. Never. Uh I've gone out there and stepped on the runs and and found the ones that were active the next morning, put the traps in there, and they go right around it. Um, and I you know, don't have a clue why, but I've never caught one on a trap. Um, but using the repellents, of products that have um, the castor bean oil extract in it, I've had excellent success with those. The first time I tried this was I went to a garden writer's meeting, and this was back in the mid-'90s. Uh, and there was a, a rep there who had a sample of this mole repellent and he gave me a sample of it and he said, I want you to try this and let me know how it works. Um, and I came home and I, I, did, I had moles in the backyard and I sprayed my flower beds only with this product. Um, and it was castor bean oil and the moles went right up to the edge of the bed. Then went right down the side of it and would not go into that bed. Uh, and of course now we have a number of companies that have products out there, Mol Max by Bonide and Mol Go by Fertilome and, uh, and they're great products. And, you know, just hook them to the hose and spray, uh, and then get it watered in. And it does an excellent job of repelling them, you know, just pushing them, chasing them back to your neighbor's house. Um, so that's the best. Now there it's available in granules also. I personally have had better relu- luck with the, the liquid. Um, but I think, um, that's your best opportunity to get rid of them um uh, so anyway uh try Momax i think uh, you'll have a good job okay we're going to take another break here we'll be back in just a second you're listening to mid-south gardening and this is jim crowder and kwam and welcome back to mid-south gardening this is jim crowder my co-host kate uh, kenneth and veda are both off today so we've been here to- talking about myths and uh, debunking some of them and making enemies. So (laughs) anyway, um, another thing that I wanted to talk about was water and how to do it properly. I see so many people that have particular irrigation systems where they turn them on same time every day for a few minutes. um, And that's not the best way to water anything. Uh, you want to water deeply. Now, of course, with our soil, the percolation rate is very slow. So you have to put the water down slowly. Otherwise, it runs off into the gutter. Um, but shallow watering is brings the roots to the surface. Therefore, they dry quicker, uh, which means you have to put down more water to keep them pumped up. You really want to try to deep water uh, when you can uh so that you um, roots are encouraged to go down into the soil um we were talking about the oak tree a minute ago it uses you know like on a 95 degree day about 400 gallons of water a day is processed through that tree so when you water you got you need to put down a lot now typically about 2 inches a week uh, is enough for your lawn and your your um, uh, shrubberies you may need to do a little more on vegetable gardens particularly if it's in a raised bed because the raised beds are good because they are your um, they're your friend because they gravity pulls water down and encourages that deep root growth uh, but they're also your enemy because it pulls water down and therefore you have to replace that water um, so it's, um, you know, elevated raised beds are, are going to require a little different uh, watering techniques. And when, when you plant them, um, we tend to plant things in rows. Consider mixing up your plants, um, not putting two tomatoes right together. Uh, and even if you're planting tomatoes, don't let them touch. There should be air being... You should be able to have air move between them. Um, and, of course, don't go in your garden first thing in the morning and get dew on you because if there's any disease, you are going to pass it from to plant to plant. Um, important to pre- help prevent early blight is as that tomato is growing, don't let any, any leaves touch the ground. Um, that's how you're going to get it. And and it's going, it's been harbored there over the winter and it's going to splash up onto your plants. So try to prevent any leaves from getting near the ground. Um, I have always wondered why people want to state tomatoes, you know, like a tree, um, when they're really not a tree. They're a rambler. If you were to just plant a seed and let it grow, it would come up and it would pile on top of itself. And so years ago, I thought, well, why don't we do this, build a table with like a lattice work or fence top that's 18 inches off the ground, plant the tomato plants under it and let them come up through it and rest on top of it. And what it does is it shades the root system and keeps them cooler so you get actually better production through the heat of the summer. You probably won't get as many tomatoes because when you stake one up, you expose that The stem to a lot of sun, which is going to cause them stress, which is going to cause them to produce more. Um, but you'll have beautiful tomatoes. They're up off the ground where the slugs can't get to them. Um, turtles can't get to them. You can get under them to fertilize or weed uh, and it it works really well. Um, so it's just a different way to to be able to plant or, or support and stake your tomatoes. And let them do what they want to do. And it's piled on top of each other. You know, and you usually make the tables like six, use six foot to laths to lay across the top or fencing. Uh, and uh, so there's no more than six foot wide. So you can reach in and pull them, you know, from either side. Um, had a guy one you know, when we first talked about this up in the boot hill of Missouri who built one that was 96 feet long. Uh, and he was real pleased with the results. Just let the tomatoes uh pile up on top of it so interesting thought anyway uh, let's see um, okay again next hour we're going to have uh two young ladies miss uh Haggerty uh, um Hagerty and rachel white they're going to be here from the tomato baby company um she grows a lot of different varieties over 100 varieties of tomatoes and like i said she was a judge uh, this past uh, weekend at, for the great tomato contest and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some other things about tomatoes, too, so during that hour, so stick with us. Uh, and, of course, you can give us a call here. The number is 901-260-5926. And uh, we'll talk about your problems if you want to. Um, and how your garden's looking. Mine's doing really well. The weeds are growing like mad, you know, so we're trying to, to weed those when it's not muddy. Uh, but we have not had the rain in Bartlett that, uh, we've had that the Germantown and Collierville got, you know, five and seven inches and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, but I have never in my life seen the power go out as much as it did. We we lost power, you know, in the storm yesterday for a little while. Uh, and so this is like four or four weeks in a row now where the power has gone out for some time or, or flickered and gone off and on. And it's, uh, you know, it never used to be that way. So, uh looking looking really close at at whole house generators to see if you know, it, it you never realize how hot it can get in a house, you know, on a ninety five degree day. Uh it uh, it gets quite uncomfortable. So anyway, um give us a call. Two six oh five nine two six. Uh another thing I wanted to mention, uh let's so see we got time here, I think, it was um want to be careful using water soluble fertilizers in your containers. Um, if you have pots and you see this white crusty stuff around the sides of the drain holes seeping through the clay pot at the top inside around the soil edge, those are soluble salts and they're, they come mostly from the fertilizer that you're using. So I would advise you not to use a water-soluble fertilizer in there, use a time-release. And and we'll talk a little bit about that when we talk about tomatoes in the next hour. Hey, thanks for tuning in. We'll be back for one more hour. And uh, this is Mid-South Gardening. I'm Jim Crowder, and this is KWAM. The garden help you need. Now, Mid-South Gardening on the Mighty 990. Powered by Palladio Home and Garden. With your hosts, Veda Vance, Kenneth Mabry, and Jim Crowder. And good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Mid-South Gardening. We've been talking this morning about um, uh, debunking some myths. But right now, we uh, I'm so happy to have a couple of guests here with me. Uh, we have Elena Haggerty and Rachel White from Tomato Baby Company. Uh, okay, where'd the name come from? Yep, put your mouth right up here on the mic. Talk to them.
3: <laughs> well, we're babysitting plants for people. Okay. Anybody can start their own, but we are basically, we're glorified uh, tomato plant babysitters.
0: Okay, and how many varieties of tomatoes do you grow?
3: Um, about 120 a year, we give or take. Uh, we'll take out about a dozen plants and add a dozen new.
0: Oh, that's Each pretty year. cool. And you also do peppers, eggplants. You got a bunch of hot peppers here. And basil. Yeah, and basil, right. You have uh, five varieties oh. of basil.
3: Yeah. We've got about 30, 30, 40 kinds of peppers for the pepper people, uh-huh. ranging from mild to sweet uh-huh. to hot. To very hot. Very hot. Uh, your ghost pepper and...
0: Carolina Reaper and all those.
3: Right. We did not do Carolina Reaper this year. We did Trinidad Scorpion. Okay. So, and then we've got about a dozen eggplant. And we do a few that are the typical that I call them bitter, but that's what people are often used to. That's what you can purchase in the stores. But um, I think we had 13 this year, and only one was the typical. The others are not bitter. They're very mild. If anybody was going to like eggplant, it would be these.
0: Cool. All right. So how did you get into this business, or what made you want to grow 120 varieties oh, of tomatoes?
3: not on purpose. Uh, <laughs> so my, my father and I, there was a lady that she had the best-tasting tomatoes, and my dad and I were just, you know, how could hers taste so good? And so he said it was because she grew her own. So we both set out to try to grow our own. And he, he, he did better the first year. I had grown about 300, and then I put them straight out in the sun and uh, from the indoors out to the sun, and they burn up. So then Dad comes over to the house, and he's showing off this big, gangly tomato plants. And they were huge, and I was, he's like, there's orange ones and yellow ones and striped ones. And I'm like, well, Dad, which one's which? He's like, I don't know. I just threw them all in a hole. And he says, I'll teach you how to do it. <laughs> so the next year, he uh, you know, told me he put, dug a hole out, framed it up, put in a layer of manure at the bottom, topsoil at the top, and he planted and he covered it with uh, glass, kept it warm. So he had me doing step-by-step, and he kept asking me, did you do this? Did you do that? He was really wanting me to make sure I got it right. And so then when it came time for comparison, I was like, of course, now I put strings in between mine, so I knew what was what. But they were used to the sun, so when I brought them out, this time they didn't burn up. And I'm like, come on, Dad, where's yours? He's like, oh, I didn't have to, grow. I taught you how. (laughs) So he duped me. So the next time he'd come to the house, the only way to get my dad back was to make money on some way that he duped you back. So I said, he said... What'd you ever do with all those tomato plants? Ha ha ha! And I said, "Oh, it's okay, Dad. I sold them on eBay." So that's how it started. That's
0: how you started. Well, that's cool. Well, we have Rachel here with us too. She's uh, worked for what three or four years? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, are you as enthusiastic about tomatoes as she is?
4: Um, I actually don't like tomatoes. So when I first <laughs> oh, no. started, well, then, now isn't that? I don't cool. you have to tell people that? <laughs> So when I first started there, I wasn't really that excited about it, but now I just love it.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even, you know, just growing them, I think, is, is cool. Yeah. You know, whether you like them or not. I haven't really liked them. And let me briefly here, we're going to talk about the winners uh, from uh, the contest, uh, the Great Tomato Contest. Um, uh, Charles Long ended up with the best of show. He had the best heirloom tomato, and it was a black creme. Uh, had the had best tasting, shape, color, uh, firmness. Uh, and he also won the best um, uh, cherry tomato with one called Purple uh, Bumblebee. Uh, the best slicer was a uh, gentleman, Ted Addison, who won one with a variety called Medium Rare. Uh, and um,
3: Now, Medium Rare won or got second. Yeah, it got year. second. Well, for best of show, it got second yeah. last year.
0: Um, he also won the heaviest one with one that weighed, uh, 36.6 ounces, a little over two pounds. Now I gotta tell you, that's a, a shy, a, a fair pound, a lot of, it's too small. Okay. The world record is one that weighs 11.65 pounds. Uh, it had a 32 and a half inch circumference, um, which broke the previous record of, uh, one that weighed 10.8 pounds. Now, the guy who had the previous record, Don, uh, a guy named uh, Dan Sutherland, he has actually grown one that weighed 16.85 pounds. That's one tomato. That's crazy. Uh, it was not uh, officially weighed and and documented, so uh, it's not the world record officially. Um, but uh, he, <laughs> he grew a big one. Um, and then the cherry tomatoes, there's a guy named Douglas Smith, he had the world record of having eight hundred and thirty-nine tomatoes on one vine, uh, and he broke his own record with twelve hundred and sixty-nine tomatoes on the same plant. So that's um, that's what we're trying to beat here in Memphis. Okay, oh my. <laughs> I'm not sure it'll happen, but uh, nice. that's some little bit of trivia there that you'll never need. So, okay, let's um, let's talk about. How do you plant tomatoes? How do you do yours?
3: Okay, so... It's, well, when it's really rainy, I use containers. So I can start them a little bit earlier. Because sometimes you just can't get in the garden and right. you know it's time to plant. You also want to wait till it's above 50 degrees so they don't stunt. So by planting containers, then I can start early sometimes. if uh, I can start early if it's Late yeah. for our season. It,
0: it, when do you start your seed?
3: Um, about Valentine's Day.
0: About Valentine's Day. You're gonna okay.
3: take. It's gonna take about two months to get them um, size for the garden. Okay. So, and okay. I'm always aiming for about April 15. All right.
0: <clears throat> okay. Memphis. They're ready to go in the garden. Yeah. How do you do it?
3: Okay, so I've been putting mine in containers, and like I said, and um, you're going to bury the stem. Hopefully you even have a long stem, which is contradictory to what most people expect to see on a tomato plant. But if you have a long stem, you're going to bury the stem up to about maybe six inches sitting above the ground. So the longer the stem, the the more you'll be able to bury. Um, The stem is going to put out roots all along. And so the more you can bury, the bigger, thicker stem you're going to have above the ground. So I've been putting them in containers and just scrolling them around the top. Mm-hmm. And so they have plenty of room to grow downward. And you need at least a five-gallon container. but I cheat, and I use a three-gallon container. Then I cut a good-sized hole about the palm, about the size of the palm of my hand in the bottom. And then that way, by the time I put, put cardboard in there to hold the dirt in, when I put them out in the garden, I sink them just a little bit, loosen up the ground with a shovel, set them wherever they're going to stay. Then when they want out, they can get out.
0: So they're still in the bucket.
3: And they're still in the
5: bucket.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Interesting. So
3: those cheap little flimsy containers that you get your shrubs and such in, Mm -hmm. hang on to them. And if it's raining, you can't get in the garden. Just start your, when you're itching to to plant, plant in that.
0: What what soil do you use when you're putting them in the container?
3: So I use the miracle Grow potting mix with moisture control. I have grown, I grow them in there as seedlings. I have grown them in there all the way up to fruiting out in the garden, and they love the stuff.
0: Okay. Cool. All right. Well, we got to take a break. We're going to come back in just a minute and talk more about maters, one of my favorite things. Okay. Uh, And you're listening to Mid-South Gardening on KWAM. And welcome back to Mid South Garden. Thank y'all for joining us this morning. Uh, I'm Jim Crowder. I'm my co-hosts, Data and Kenneth, uh, are off. They'll be back next week. Um, and I have it in the studio here: uh, Elena Haggerty and Rachel White from the Tomato Baby Company. Okay, all right, and, and okay. So we were talking about you use uh, Miracle Grow potting soil. Okay, yes. and then you're putting that pot right into the ground, and then just letting them go into your subsoil.
3: Yes, I sink the pot just a little bit. Okay, just a little bit. And then take out a couple divots, loosen the ground up, set the pot there, put your divots around it, and that'll essentially stake that pot down so when they get top heavy Mm -hmm. that it'll help hold it in the ground.
5: Cool. All
0: right.
3: And I I attach them along a fence because my guys are going to get big big and tall.
0: And so do do you stake them or do you just, what do you do? I
3: put a piece of those, uh, Tractor Supply sells it as like a cattle panel, Mm -hmm. just like a, Just a single panel, Uh and then I zip tie the, I still put my cages on them because I I had them already, but um, some I put cages on, I guess. Some I just weave through the cattle panel, but I can zip tie the um, cages to the cattle panel or the center fence, and they're not going to fall down.
5: Yeah. Okay.
0: Cool. Uh, I was talking about, I don't know if you heard it, if you were listening and talked about earlier a way that I like to grow tomatoes. And basically, as you make a, uh, a table about 18 inches off the ground, that's made out of either fencing or lattice, something like that that tomatoes can grow through. Mm-hmm. And they grow up through it and then rest on top of it. Uh, because tomatoes are actually uh, ramblers. They're not trees. Mm-hmm. And if you let them pile up on top of each other, um, they don't produce quite as much because they're not stressed from the sunlight on the stems. But the ground temperature stays cooler under it. You right. can get under them to fertilize or weed. Uh, and you end up with a, a, a good crop that's away from slugs and, and that sort of thing. So it's kind of a unique way. And particularly when you get old like me and you can't bend over like that. So it's an easy way to do it <laughs> and just let them grow that way.
3: And uh, well, if they can touch down again too and then reroute.
0: They could, yeah. But then most of uh, the, they're just rooting up on top. I, uh, gotcha. I mean, just laying up on top. So uh, it's just a way to keep them up off the ground. Uh, and keep the ground cooler. and, and tend to get better uh, pollination during the heat uh, because the ground temperature is cooler. Uh, and I think you d- you don't get as many tomatoes, like I say, because it, they're not stressed from the sunlight hitting the right. stems. But uh, they're pretty and they're easy to, to harvest. No, so, I could see that would work.
3: Yeah. Not, not to tell on my mama, yeah. but when the weeds overtake mama's garden and I go out and I, and I help her pick, She will have a good crop of tomatoes up under where they've had a little bit of coverage Mm -hmm. from the weeds near the bottom, Mm -hmm. and and it is a lot cooler. It'll be spacious on the bottom, and uh, where all that cover is, Mm -hmm. and they'll have a. She'll have a lot good crop of tomatoes.
0: Cool. All right. Um. Tell me about your eggplants. Um. Any, any secrets on how you grow those the same? No, way?
3: eggplants are super easy.
0: Okay, do you grow them the same way in pots? or? Do you yes,
3: just... yes. Um, your peppers and your eggplant only take about half the amount of water that your tomatoes do. Uh-huh. Um, that's real easy, and it, that's a rule in the greenhouse setting. But uh, in the garden, you would probably treat them about the same as your tomatoes. Uh, not letting them dry out. They are super easy. You don't have to worry about your blossom end rot that you get with the tomatoes. Um, they're as easy as peppers.
0: Mm-hmm. So do you are, do you have any issues with blossom end rot when you're growing them?
3: Uh, tomatoes, some.
0: Okay. But mm-hmm. I think everybody does. Right. Well, we were talking earlier about um, what people do, like adding tums to the ground when they plant them for... To prevent blossom end rot, in uh, it's it's really it's a waste of time because tums and is, is just uh, and eggshells are just lime they're calcium carbonate uh, and the problem is calcium carbonate cannot be moved up through the stem when the soil's wet like it is so we have to go to a different because it's not a lack of calcium in the soil it's the inability of the plant to move Pull the calcium right. to the fruit so we go to a either a liquid calcium chloride which is readily moved or go to a calcium nitrate fertilizer, then those types of calcium can be moved readily even in wet soil, and it will fix your blossom end rot problem. Uh, But again, it's not the fact that the calcium is not there. We have plenty of calcium in our soil usually. Uh, It's just that the plant can't move it, move calcium carbonate, uh, which is what we give them most of the time, either as lime or Tums or... You You would say that
3: was from underwatering and overwatering, or just underwatering? It's
0: inconsistent inconsistent watering, but it's primarily in the Mid-South and our clay associated with too much water. Too much water. Staying too wet for too long. Yeah. Uh, And uh, so it's. um, I try
3: to encourage people to mulch, and I like to use a layer of newspaper and then pine needles or hay on top Mm -hmm. to try to give it a consistent. Moisture, Yeah, and it helps keep the ground cool.
0: You know, in fact, I was watching the family plot Thursday night, uh, and they were mulching their um, tomato plant, and they were using a dark mulch uh, around it. And I'm thinking, this is just absorbing heat. Why would you do that? Why would you not use a light mulch like cypress or something other, or pine needles, other than putting a black mulch around a tomato? It seems... Uh, I
3: like the pine needles in the yeah. in the newspaper. That within one growing season with the Bermuda, which we have a problem with around here, is not. It may throw a runner over, but it's not going to take within the few months that we have to grow in.
5: Yeah. Okay. So
3: and then and then all that can till back in and deteriorate. Yeah. And add to the soil. All
0: right. And uh, so, how you do you have to use insecticides occasionally?
3: In the greenhouse, I do.
0: Uh
3: Um, Occasionally. Mostly, I can curb uh, the problems that we would have out there generally would be aphids. Uh And we found that we can cure those or handle those with uh, just watering practices. Uh It's cloudy. No water today. Spot water, if they need it. We hand water. We can't use any. There's, tomato plants are so susceptible to diseases that we can't use an automatic watering system. Right. So, and then we keep them on a schedule, and I swear they are used to the schedule, not just us, but the plants, I swear it, Um, but we just, you know, every four hours or so that they're in the sun, then it's time to water, some days it's spot water, some days it's full water, and then somebody goes and checks them, and we can set up a time to water, and the next thing you know, a cloud comes out, Er, we're changing the water schedule. (laughs) But if we do that and we let the sun naturally curb, dry the top out, mm-hmm. kill any eggs, keep anything, you know, aphids from starting up, then, you know, we don't have to use we a lot of chemicals. Right. Um, we're not organic, but we're we're responsible. Right. So cool. we uh, looked into adding ladybugs and beneficial insects, and we found that the best way was just curb with water and practices. Right. But uh, we get a lot of little baby uh, praying mantises, and we get ladybugs and things out there, and we just don't like to treat if we can avoid it. And we yeah. generally can.
0: All right. Well, for those at home, those, if you're having to deal with it, one of the, the best things for tomato hornworms, which are going to do so much damage so quick, is just a little BT. Uh, it's just a bacteria you put on there, and really, and they eat it in just a matter of uh, a minute or so, they start dropping off the plant. So... Uh, uh, that that's an excellent product. If for other issues, if you have, you know, if you're growing forty tomato plants, um, things like spinosad are very safe. Uh, if you'll spray it at dusk, um, by morning it's dry and it's uh, you're not going to affect your pollinators at all. Uh, of course, you you know try not to spray open flowers always, but uh, but spinosad is about as safe as you can get, and it's another bacteria that uh, uh, helps. Um, control just about all insects so good product and and very very safe
3: i've used the bt quite a bit yeah um which would also go as organic
0: yeah that would qualify as organic yeah and of course you know finding hornworms the best way is to get out there with a black light because they glow in the dark it's so cool (laughs) and
3: and chickens love them Oh, not so much fish. I've had no luck there. When you know, tried my, fishing.
0: My turtles would not eat them. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: I understand that. Uh, what are these lizards that people have? Bearded dragons. I understand they love them. They'll eat them. Okay. Yes. So.
5: Uh, <laughs> All right. But
3: now I like the I like the dust rather mm-hmm. than the spray. Oh. Because when you get in the summer, it's the type of weather where it may rain when you're out and about, but when you come home. You don't. It looks like it hasn't rained at all, so by putting the dust, you can see whether or not you need to reapply.
0: I got you. Okay, and I can see that on vegetables. You know, I I don't like dust normally because you, you see dust. You know, right. Particularly on or, on ornamentals. Right, yeah. right, right. And, right, I, and right. I don't. All of my vegetable uh, harvesting is done at Kroger. Okay. Oh. <laughs> I I grow flowers. Well, for years I had shady lawns, and you just couldn't grow vegetables. Period. You know. Gotcha. And now, time two elms have died, and I've gotten a little sunlight in there, and I'm able to grow sunflowers that I was never able to grow before. And you know, so, but you know, I figure when I buy Miracle Grow potting soil and a pot and plant that two or three tomatoes on my my uh, patio, they're costing me somewhere around eighty dollars a pound. Oh, Wow. So you know. Right. It's it's so much cheaper just to buy them at Kroger. They don't taste good, you right. know, but they do slice nice, <laughs> right? You know,
3: you just need you just need people bringing you more fruit. Yeah, there you, you go. You just inc- just do what my father did: encourage others, encourage others to grow more. There you
0: go. You, know, you can you come over and benefit. cut flowers, and, and you know, there you go. It's I'll swap you y- swap you some eggplant tomatoes for it. So I took home a couple of those big tomatoes from the contest. Oh yeah. Uh, And it was so juicy. I mean, I made a tomato sandwich, you know, which is the best thing in the world. Um, And it just dripped all over my shirt. You know, it was was a real mess, but it was so good.
3: Let me tell you something. When they were cleaning up, they asked, Lena, do you want any of these? And I was like, I was like, oh, oh no, because I had just tasted
0: 80 something tomatoes. (laughs) tomatoes. And
3: I said, no. And then about four (laughs) hours later, I was like, why didn't I bring any of those tomatoes home?
0: that's uh, that's a mess all right uh, we're have, gonna have to get to a break here in a minute so we're not gonna get it uh to, um we come back we're gonna talk about my friends over at uh, her systems and uh, we're gonna talk a little bit more about she's got a whole plate full of little tiny tomatoes here we're gonna talk about those a little bit we'll be right back this is KWAM and mid-south garden come back to mid-south gardening i'm going to talk about my friends over purpose um, i started doing ads for kenny crenshaw back in the early 90s when they were had just kind of gotten started um and before i would do the ads with him i uh, followed some of his trucks to see how his applicators uh were doing if they were um properly trained and so forth and i was very impressed with them uh, and then i went out and talked to sat down with kenny and and. Talked about his program, what he uses, and and uh, and he, I found him to be uh, extremely concerned about the environment. In fact, when uh, they moved from their little tiny place on Leisure Lane to a a, a bigger building, he spent a lot of money making uh, it environmentally safe, so that when they washed the trucks, they could capture the water and put it back into the truck, so that no no herbicides were you know were being washed down the drains. So. Uh, he's just a really sharp guy. And, um, so if, you know, if you uh, want somebody who really knows local weeds, local grasses, you know, they, uh, you need to call Herbis Systems. Uh, they're just great people. Um, they do my daughter's house, uh, where I'm living. Um, and you know, it is, it's weed free. It's just great. So, uh, you get a chance, give them a call It's Herbis Systems. They're, uh, they'll uh, do an excellent job for you and just tell them that, uh, yeah, Jim sent you. So Kenny's uh, a great guy. All right, all right. We're still we're in the studio here, and we still have uh, Elena and uh, Rachel from the Tomato Baby Company. Um, and she grows like 125 tomatoes, and, and she ships them all over the country. Apparently, the plants.
3: The plants. Just not the plants. maters. No. Yeah.
0: Um. And uh, and it's just it's remarkable. It it, it the number of tomatoes and now are do you have people ask you to grow yes you do. do
3: yes we do custom orders too you contract
0: order too yeah that's people
3: cool. just mail us seeds and we start them
0: okay and then you mail them back. that's pretty good yep.
5: yeah
0: that is cool a steak sandwich now that sounds like a good one uh, now,
3: the best to show at the contest was best cr- uh, black cream. Black cream. It now really see, was a
0: great-tasting tomato.
3: Now, see, I grew black cream years ago, and then uh, the reports back were that people didn't like them. It's, it's
0: not a tomatoey taste. It's more, it's, it, there's no, not a lot of acidity to it. Right. So, which is what I like. Uh, I like sweet tomatoes. Um
3: but we're going to bring black cream back because yep, that go. one that was excellent the
5: other day.
0: Yeah, it really was. So, yeah.
3: but we work through the list, we will add them, add new ones each year, try to cull a few out and then but then it, you know, tomatoes it, they come back around. Oh, you know, yeah. it's I guess like any hobby, things will come back around. Mm-hmm. So people will taste it and blog about it or talk about it and put it all over social media and they'll be like, "Whoa, that wasn't so great." And what you really want to try is such and such, mm-hmm. and so now there's a new rush on such and such, mm-hmm. but the black crumbs come back around. Yeah. So there's a freezer full of types. So a lot of times people can ask me, and the seeds are probably in my freezer.
0: Yeah, in fact, I asked you if you were growing ramapo, and you said you had seeds, seeds in, the in the freezer. The freezer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Rachel, what do you do over there to uh, make her life easier?
4: Um, pretty much anything that she needs, I guess. I help her out in the garden. So, like, we would. Break up pine needles and then plant the tomato plants, and I would spread pine needles out and lay newspaper. Um, I help her ship orders in the greenhouse. On Saturdays, if she had to work, I would watch the greenhouse and help all the customers and water. Farm tours. Farm tours, yeah. And then time to water again. And then time to water again, right as a bunch of customers would come through
3: the door.
0: Mm-hmm. So are you open every day or just weekends or what?
3: So we went to a nights and weekend schedule. Um, and of course it's April and May uh-huh. and it's, uh, nights and weekends. All right, cool. So. All right.
0: So if you want some custom tomatoes, you can send her the seeds. She'll grow them for you.
3: Right. And then they can go to, uh, tomato baby mm-hmm. And we try to get people to put an order in just cause it helps with the inventory. It helps with, uh, getting their order pulled because the greenhouse is hot. Mm-hmm. But, um, Usually we get people to come and they pick it up and take a little farm tour. It's not much. It's sort of what you make it with the critters, but there's a...
0: So how many tomatoes do you put in the field?
3: I've got tomatoes, peppers combined. I've got about 125 plants out right now. Okay. So...
0: And do you sell the fruit or... I do not. You do not.
3: It's mostly so we can sample, see how things grow. Um, Like, for instance, last year we had two kinds of green eggplant. An oblong and a long, but neither one produced many. I think I had like two off of each green type. Mm-hmm. So this year we uh, we only grew the we discontinued those two types. We grew them in a small quantity if people asked for them, and then uh, we started two new ones, two new types. Mm-hmm. And so far, I've gotten as much this year off those types than I did the whole season. Wow. Last year. So I think we made a good choice on the change, and they taste good. So. Cool. All
0: right. Uh, let's see. I wanted to um, – what was oh, I was going to talk, talk about. about? I was going to talk about – oh, the little tomatoes here. Yes. The, she's got um, she's got a bowl full of little tiny tomatoes here. And um, some of these are like the size of, of – um, well, they're a little bigger than BBs, <laughs> but not much.
3: <laughs> those are spoon tomatoes.
0: Spoon tomatoes, okay.
3: Someone entered those in the Great Tomato Contest last year, and that was my first time I've ever tried the little ones.
0: Okay, I'm going to eat one here. See what it tastes like. If I can taste one, really sweet. Well, that's good. Take a bunch of them for a tomato sandwich, but
3: and they've actually. Okay, so we just had a recent rain, and those did not split. They have a thicker skin on them, but it works with that size tomato Mm -hmm. because they're not going to bust whenever you put them in a salad, whenever you're picking them. They won't break in your hand. They're not splitting. Mm -hmm. So they're actually pretty neat.
0: No, these are really good. I take it you would get a lot off of a plant.
3: Yes. And that is a crazy plant, too. Apparently, the smaller the tomato, the crazier the plant grows. Huh.
5: So,
0: that is so cool. And then you got little black ones here and orange ones. Black cherry, black sun sugar. sugar. Mm-hmm. Now, what? sun
3: sugar was the winner of the.
0: Was that the cherry. yellow one here?
3: Or, no, I'm sorry, not the cherry. It was the junior division. Mm-hmm. Cher- a cherry. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: Okay, I'm gonna try one of these one.
3: They're sort of an orange-yellow.
0: Not as impressed. Good. But they're a little tiny one. I like a sweet tomato, so it's really good.
3: So then the little tiny yellows, are well, they're not tiny. They're about marble size. Yeah. Those are white currant.
0: Yeah, they don't even look like tomatoes. They look like grapes.
3: Now, I'm not going to lie. I had a hard time figuring out if those really were Really sweet. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Whoa. Well, that's good.
3: So that's one of our challenges this time of the year, too, is to try to figure out if they're ripe. hmm So I think squishy, if it's squishy, that it's going to be little, our best. Yeah, that one's
0: a little soft. Yeah. Um, but it's really, really sweet. Good. Hmm. Uh, we're going to have to take another break here in just a minute, so I don't want to get into anything else. But I do want to uh, thank you all for coming. Okay. And... Uh, we're we're gonna they're gonna be here for another fifteen minutes or so until the end of the show, and uh, like today we got a oh, let's go, oh, we got Jamie let's let's take Jamie real quick the master gardener hey Jamie <laughs> good morning well you uh, got our know. attention
2: first of all thank thank Elania for her time on last Saturday morning that was uh, that was we really appreciate the effort she put into getting there and we dodged a bullet with the weather on that well, it was, Saturday too. it was
0: beautiful really <coughs> was.
3: so enjoyed it.
2: But anyway, I know that uh, if you're going to raise big tomatoes or whatever, you got to have big seeds. And several years ago, uh, a gentleman uh, was trying to raise big tomatoes, and he had he bought some seeds from Austria. At that time, it was the world's record. And he paid something like $37 for 10 seeds. And I just wondered if Alainius had tried to grow any of the big tomatoes and if if that's true. Now, this guy was prone to vibe a bit. And I just wonder if that price was out of line for a for a big tomato seed.
0: Do You have any that cost you, you know, roughly three or four dollars a seed?
3: Uh, uh, I'm getting about. There's a lot of types that have gone up this year. I mean, a lot of seeds. All the seeds really have gone up. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I think I've had a lot of seeds. It'd be like uh, ten seeds for six bucks. Mm-hmm. is some of ours has become unfortunately common so
0: but well you know it's it's kind of the demand too you know if you've got something that people want you can you know put whatever price you want on it uh, you know we used to you know when we it, when I was in Russell Heckle years and years ago uh you know spend the day packaging seed and we would uh, you had with things like at that time, to uh, Big Boy and Better Boy, you had to count the seed that you put in the package, mm-hmm. you know, based on, you know, if it was going to be uh, $4 for a pack, then, you know, you got about 12 seed or so in there. So it, uh, I'm sure if it was going to grow
3: me a 10 pound tomato, I would buy it. <laughs> I would buy the seed, I'm sure.
5: Yeah.
0: This one uh, we were talking about earlier, this one that uh, it was world record. Um, the variety is called 9.06 brown, uh, and it weighed 11.65 pounds, but the guy says he's grown one that was 16.85 pounds. So uh, that's a, that's a lot of tomato. That
3: is amazing. Yeah.
0: So, Jamie, we do appreciate you, uh, asking us to be a part of that last week. we really enjoyed it.
2: Um, thank you, sir. And, and uh, they, uh, the, the biggest one in the world, as yet Guinness would not recognize it, but it's 16-plus pounds is yeah. what I understand. Yeah, that's so, right. Anyway, thats uh, they're doing some funny things with seeds. So I'm just wondering, that was the reason I was asking the question for Elena. And thank you all again for, for your support, and we really appreciate you. Glad to oh, do it, Jim. Thank
0: you. All right. We'll do it again next year for sure. Okay, we're going to take a, another final break here. We'll be back in a minute. This is Mid-South Gardening, KWA-M. And welcome back to the final segment of Mid South Gardening. Appreciate you joining this morning. I hope I haven't bored you too much with uh, with the myths and and, uh, and so forth. Uh, I've enjoyed doing this. Uh, that way, I don't have uh, Kenneth and Veda in here arguing with me. Uh, of course, they don't let me talk much. You know, I sit over on the dark side over here, and just you know, I, I'm here basically to make sure they don't make a mistake. So anyway. Um, so I I was talking to Rachel in the in the um uh, during the break here and tell you're you're studying environmental sciences. Yes. And what does that entail?
4: I guess it's just um looking at how plants and animals interact and mm-hmm. seeing what we can do to help them interact a little bit better with people and make it just more cohesive overall.
0: Cool. All right. Leave the people out of the picture, and they do just fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Go over a couple of the myths that we talked about very early in case you just joined us. Um, One was the eggshells, which was, you know, people think they're doing something to um, help change the pH, help prevent blossom end rot. And the fact is they're calcium carbonate, uh, the same thing as lime. Uh, They're not organic okay, the insides of the egg organic, but the shell itself is not. Um, And it's really not a good source of much of anything other than it does have some calcium, but it's readily not available, you know. We were talking about some that were, you know, found in in archaeological sites that were over 165 years old, and you could still tell if they were duck or chicken eggs. So they're not breaking down very quickly. And in fact, for eggshells to do anything to your pH they would have to be ground down to what's to pass through a 60 mesh and that means a a screen that has 60 holes per inch or 3,600 holes in a square inch so they're very tiny holes and you're not going to be able to get that eggshell down to that size and one of the problems with is that when you don't get it quite down there far enough um, worms eat them and then die from it. Okay? They can't pass them. Um, so it really doesn't do much of anything uh, that's good for your garden. It's not going to help your your uh, because it's calcium carbonate it's not going to help your blossom end rot. Um, you've got to go to, a, to calcium, a liquid calcium chloride or go to calcium nitrate fertilizer. Um, the other thing we talked about was the coffee grounds and about uh, everything about them is bad. Um, they, uh, if it's mixed in with the soil before it's composted, it kills plants. Um, and in compost, it kills worms. Uh, so again, there's nothing good that I know of um, that comes from putting coffee grounds around anything. Um, throw them in your in your compost pile. It's fine. Make some, you know, uh, good compost in time. Um, but it's there's um, no reason to put it um, coffee grounds in in your soil mix or uh, uh, putting it on top of the ground because uh, nothing good happens from it.
3: I think some of these things is a case of too much of a good thing. Yeah, is bad. Yeah, and uh, a lot of people will start a new flower bed and they'll read and they'll put it in the coffee grounds and the eggshells and all the good things and it equals something bad. So I tell them no matter what. However, they're stalking their new flower bed. Do at least one container. Get out the Miracle Grow potting mix with moisture (laughs) control because I know it works, (laughs) and do a comparison planning Yeah. So and see how it goes. And sometimes the the flower bed may not do good this year. Or I mean, I'm sorry, the new raised bed they did uh, may not do well this year, but it might after some of the things break down.
0: That's right. Second year, year, people get really disappointed with their results from first year using a a potting soil, Uh, and and a couple of reasons it's so coarse. There's nothing really to hang on to nutrients. Uh, You really should have some clay in there, something with small particle size, so that water and uh, and nutrients, fertilizer can stick to it. Uh, Because when you water it, it's going right out the bottom. Uh, So you really need something in there that has smaller particles. And as it breaks down the next year, it's better suited to hold that so uh, yeah a lot of people get real disappointed after doing their first year of bed. um, um you yeah, well that was the two things that we really wanted to talk about
3: i want to can we talk about pollination in the summer uh,
0: okay talk about pollination
3: <laughs> okay so when it gets hot and you're above 90 degrees your tomato plants do not want to pollinate that's correct the pollen is just not as viable in the heat um your honeybees uh will generally pollinate for you if it was cooler
0: yeah but they're not honeybees typically aren't the good pollinators you need bumblebees
3: yes that's where i was going okay so and so we want to and also your wind pollination generally when it's cooler and your farmer thumping which just thump the blooms or shake the i like to walk down the rows and shake the cages Um, But when it's hot, the pollen is not as viable. So although you're getting the same movement, that is just not good enough. So we want the bumblebees. They're excellent for trying to move more of the pollen. Um, It's a numbers game when it's that hot. Mm -hmm. And therefore, get pollination to get your fruit. So plants that encourage the bumblebees, I've been planting coleus in order to, they get the bumblebees in to do Mm -hmm. also you can use an electric toothbrush people ask me all the time what kind of tomato plants can we grow in our area you can pretty much grow any kind of tomato plant uh in the heat or the cooler well some are more particular to cool but in the heat you can grow any kind of tomato plant however um plan on doing your uh, self-pollination with the toothbrush.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, just- it's as much a self-defense uh, mechanism for the plant. Uh, it takes a lot of energy to produce fruit. And when it's hot and there's lack of, and typically less water, then the plant plants do one thing really well, but not two things. So they mm-hmm. shift away from trying to produce fruit uh, and go back to producing foliage when we have the, the, heat. the excessive heat. Uh, and then when it cools down, it goes back to thinking about reproduction—the one thing that it's supposed to do. Plants are pretty smart. I knew it was
3: not as viable, but I didn't. I've never heard an explanation as to why. That's one. And it's another thing that the plants are doing when they're taking care of themselves. That's
0: right. So, so I love bumblebees. Not big on honeybees. <laughs> anyway, we we talked about those earlier too, um, about honeybees being an invasive species and. Really, they only produce, they only pollinate about ten percent of the crops worldwide, uh, and about thirty percent in the United States. But most of that is almonds, uh, where they move millions, really millions, of hives to Southern California to pollinate the almond crop, uh, which is why we've lost so many of the the wild honeybees because they moved the mite all the way across the country when they did it. So anyway, well, shucks, thank y'all for being here. I uh, appreciate you coming in for the last hour because I was running out of mist. Uh, and anyway, we'll be back next week. Beta and Kenneth will be back. Thank you very much. This is KWAM 107.9 in 990 AM. Thank you for listening.